0: Well, we're starting out a new series today in the book of Ecclesiastes. So, if you've got a Bible, turn over to Ecclesiastes. Hopefully, some of you have had a chance to read it over the last couple of weeks. Some of you may may have read it before, or that may have been a whole new experience. I've had some conversations with some of you that have read it and asked questions like, what on earth are you going to do with this book of the Bible? And, 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 and those questions come up, don't they? When you read this book, you, you have questions like, What on earth is this? How does this book fit with the rest of the Bible? Might have been one of the questions you had. Why, why does this sound so different to everything else that you read in the scriptures? It's such a different voice. It's like the rest of the Bible is an orchestra all playing one song in harmony, and then Ecclesiastes is just off on its own melody just off doing its own thing. It just sounds so incredibly different. And that melody doesn't always sound particularly pleasant. It's like Ecclesiastes is set in a minor key. It, it's, it's pretty depressing stuff. calls into question the meaning of life. What's it all about? Why bother? You might have got to the end of the book and wondered, why on earth am I even bothering with my life? What's the point of all this? Why is this guy such a manic-depressive what is the problem? Why is it so hard? Why is everything meaningless? Why is this so negative? Why is there such skepticism in this book? Why is he such a glass half empty kind of guy? Uh, And and for that reason, Ecclesiastes is often a bit of an embarrassment to Christians, and we don't pay much attention to it in the Bible. We sort of sideline it in favor of much more important books, we think, like Romans and John you know these are the important these are the ones we, we're supposed to be reading right and Ecclesiastes this is just off to the side kind of in a less important we, we tend to create a hierarchy in the Bible of the books we think really matter and then these other obscure things that are just you know how did this even how did it even make the cut you know maybe someone was just taking bribes on the day that they were choosing the books for the Bible I don't know how did this even get in there so it's just kind of a, this weird book that sits there. We don't really know what to do with it, and, and sometimes we, we try to maybe bend it this way or that to make it fit with the rest of the Bible, but it really doesn't want to, so we just tend to ignore it a lot of the time. as It's just too weird. It's just too bizarre. It's just too different. And those are the things that really have caused me to love this book. It's because it just refuses to conform, doesn't it? it just it refuses to say what we think the bible should say because we want the bible to be this nice little tidy book with a ribbon around it that falls out of heaven onto our lap and just dishes up these nice platitudes about life that we can say to one another and have warm fuzzy feelings inside you know and ecclesiastes just refuses to be that it doesn't dish up this nice tidy System of theology that is orderly and coherent and watertight and logical and stable. It's messy, and it's gritty, and it's it's full of paradox and even I think contradiction. And it's tough, but it's real. It's real life. It, Ecclesiastes just refuses this kind of disconnection that we often set up between faith on the one hand, and real life, as it actually is, on the other hand. Often we just live in this world where we say we believe these certain things and we've got this system of faith, but then there's our real life is over here. And Ecclesiastes will just have none of that. It confronts head-on the realness, the ugliness, the brutality of life, as it is, as we encounter it. And it tries to make sense of God and faith and what it is to follow God in the midst of those realities of life. I think Ecclesiastes rewards those who really wrestle with it. it. doesn't always reward a first-time surface reading, I know. It can just sound morbidly depressing. But if we wait patiently with it, and we really burrow into it, and we listen, it's got some real treasure. And it's got the potential to lead us into a faith that is richer and deeper and more real and more able to deal with life actually as it is rather than as we might want it to be. That's the potential that Ecclesiastes has got. So what I want to do this morning is make some comments just by way of introducing this book. Next Sunday we'll dive into chapter 1 and get stuck into the text itself but today I want to give you a bit of an overview just to provide us with a roadmap. map for where we're going and some ways of thinking about what this book is at a big picture level because it's important when you burrow into the details that, that you don't lose the wood for the trees. You don't, don't lose a sense of the whole thing and what it's about and what it's trying to do. So hopefully when you came in, you got a handout this morning and you might want to follow along with that handout. If you're a writer, feel free to fill in the gaps, um, but you don't have to do that, up to you. So that may, may just be another way to learn as we go along here. But Ecclesiastes is part of this genre in the Bible that we call wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. And Israel wasn't the only nation to have wisdom literature. There's a lot of it around. A lot of different countries have their own wisdom literature. It's really a way wisdom literature tries to make sense of the world and seek to live well within it. Wisdom literature is about making sense of reality, sense of the world as we see it, And then living well, living rightly within the world. What does it mean to live well? What does it mean to live wisely? And within Israel, within the particular wisdom tradition of Israel, you have wisdom teachers or sages as they're called. Not sage as in the herb, but sage as in the wisdom teacher. Sages, and they would impart wisdom to Israel. And the starting point for wisdom within the scriptures, wisdom literature in the Bible, is the reality of God. And this is never questioned. Even in Ecclesiastes... Hard as it is, and, uh, and, and, and depressing as it is at times, it never questions the basic reality of God. The author of Ecclesiastes is not an atheist nor an agnostic. He has a lot of trouble figuring God out, but he certainly believes that God exists and that God is sovereign. And so that's the starting point for wisdom literature, that God exists, that he is real, that he has created all that exists, and that he sustains all that exists in some ways. In some way he is providential. Over the world, and so, therefore, in view of Yahweh, in view of God, what is it to live wisely? What does it mean to live well within this world? And Ecclesiastes is part of this genre along with Proverbs and Job. Those are the other two books. A little collection of three. They make up the wisdom literature in the Bible. And even though they're part of this genre together, they are w- amongst themselves very different books. You think of the different flavors, if you've read Job, it, it tells a very different story from Ecclesiastes, which tells a very different story from Proverbs. But each of these three books is fundamentally about a search. they searching for something. Proverbs is about the search for wisdom. That fundamental question, what does it mean to live wisely? What is wisdom? Where does it start? Where does it end? How do I know how to apply wisdom to the complexities of life in front of me. And Proverbs just lays that out, all kinds of examples, all kinds of situations. What does wisdom look like within the world and within everyday life? And then the book of Job is about the search for God's presence. When life doesn't go well, when you try Proverbs and you still get ripped off anyway, When you act wisely and life still turns against you, what then? These are the questions that Job is asking, and in the midst of that suffering that Job experienced, in the midst of that that anguish, there is a longing and a searching for the divine presence. Where is God's presence? It's still part of wisdom literature because it's still seeking to make sense of the world. Where is God when it hurts, when life is difficult, and where is wisdom then in the midst of that? And so if... Proverbs is about the search for wisdom and Job is about the search for God's presence. Ecclesiastes is concerned with the search for meaning. That's what it's about. And if you hear nothing else today, hear that. Ecclesiastes is about the search for meaning. Ecclesiastes looks at Proverbs in a sense and says, okay, that's what wisdom is. And it looks at Job who says, well, I tried that and it didn't work. Look where it got me. And Ecclesiastes steps back and says, well, in view of all of that, what does this all mean? What does life even mean? And what is the point of it all? When God seems absent, when things seem difficult, when life just seems meaningless, which is the word that keeps coming up, what does it all mean? And it's just such a modern question, isn't it? That's the amazing thing, I think, about Ecclesiastes. It just has no trouble speaking across two and a half millennia. You know, some parts of the Bible just seem so outdated and you have to work harder to try and find the relevance and it's always there but it takes a lot of work sometimes ecclesiastes just taps into the modern or you could even say postmodern search for meaning what does life make? what is the point of working eating sleeping living Praying, whatever, accumulating stuff, what is the point? Where is meaning? How do I locate meaning in any area, in any arena of life? It's the, it's the longing of the human heart. It's the question every one of us has had for as long as humanity has been around. These are the questions that Ecclesiastes is asking. What does it all mean? Where can I find meaning? And so the author of Ecclesiastes undertakes the search for meaning in life. And it is that, it's a search, it's a journey. He's a pilgrim on the road trying to figure out what does this all mean? This person who wrote Ecclesiastes, or at least this, this person who is the main voice within Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew name for him is Kohelet. It's not a, it's not a proper name like John or Mary. It's uh, often translated as the teacher But I think there's a better translation. And in this series, what I'm going to do is follow Eugene Pedersen in the message translation and call him the quester. Because that actually gets closer to who he is. Don't think of the author of Ecclesiastes so much as a teacher, like a rabbi, who is instructing his pupils. Think of him more as a pilgrim on a journey. So when you come to Ecclesiastes and you're reading Ecclesiastes, we're not so much sitting at the feet of a great teacher, but we're walking alongside a pilgrim who is himself searching for meaning. He's trying to figure this out. He's not got it all figured out and telling us. He's trying to work it through, and he's allowing us to listen in on the conversation. He's allowing us to walk with him on the journey as he asks the questions, as he wrestles it through, as he comes up with this conclusion and then this conclusion, and this might sound different to that, the tensions the wrestling, the grappling, we're, we're sort of just eavesdropping on this conversation that he's kind of having with himself and walking alongside him. So he is a guide and he's a faithful guide, but he is also on a quest. And so we'll call him the quester, not the teacher, to try and distinguish that, that his role really is a pilgrim and not a rabbi. Now traditionally, the identity of this quester has been linked with King Solomon. And it's been believed that King Solomon, because of some references in the first chapter that sound like King Solomon is the guy writing it, talks about being the son of David, talks about being king over Israel, people have thought, oh, the quester is King Solomon, and that's just a title that he's using in order to, 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 to write this book. But I think that for several reasons, the quester is not King Solomon. And uh, because there are some, some kind of technical reasons for that, I have done a a separate little podcast on who wrote Ecclesiastes. And if you want to go more into the authorship question and uh, look at the, the issues behind why I don't think Solomon did write Ecclesiastes... You can get hold of that. It's just 15 minutes. A little mini-message. It's up on our website and the teaching site. Go to that, and you can uh, just, uh, just walk through some of the texts within Ecclesiastes that I think show why Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes, why the quester is not King Solomon. But I think what's happening is that the quester, the author of, of Ecclesiastes, is using the persona of Solomon. I think that's, that's the strategy. He's, he's looking for meaning in the world and in order to undertake this quest he is adopting the persona of a great king at least for the first few chapters. He adopts the persona of King Solomon. It's like he steps into Solomon's shoes and he looks around the world from Solomon's perspective as the great wise king within Israel. What would it have been like? Solomon who had everything that his heart desired who accumulated more wealth than anyone else who had more wisdom than anyone else that's why he's the perfect persona because he just embodied the the great wisdom of israel and so the quester sort of takes on that identity he's not trying to be deceptive he's trying to make his point he's stepping into the shoes of a great figure the wisest person that's ever lived in order to look around and try to find where on earth meaning can be found in the world and that lasts a few chapters and then he drops that persona and he carries on just as the quester just as himself for the rest of the book. So you need to understand there's that strategy going on. I don't think he is King Solomon, but I think he's using Solomon as a literary device in order to search for meaning in the world. So what happens here as you go through Ecclesiastes, and what we're going to find, is that he starts out on this pilgrimage, looking around, trying to find meaning, but he hits these roadblocks. And this is why Ecclesiastes sounds so negative. He comes up against these, these limitations, These roadblocks which stop him in his tracks and prevent him from being able to find meaning in the world. And there are three of them, three major roadblocks that the quester encounters on his journey. There are more than that, but there are three main ones. And by getting our heads around these, you'll start to get a framework for for where he's going. Three major limitations that he comes across. And each of these are like restrictions that are placed on humanity. They're things that we experience simply by virtue of being mortal simply by being virtue of human being human we experience these limitations and these are the things that frustrate the question no end and lead him ultimately to to decide that there is no meaning in life so let me just run through these with you the first one the first of his limitations is the limitation of death there's very little in Ecclesiastes in the way of any sense of an afterlife at all any sense of post-mortem existence is virtually absent. Ecclesi- there's little hints of a, of a judgment, maybe, that is coming, but there are only little hints. The idea of any future resurrection is completely absent. So let me give you an example of how he describes death. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19, he says, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. That's basically his view. So death is the great nullifier of all things. It's like at the end of the game of Monopoly, it doesn't matter how many houses you've accumulated because it all goes back in the box. It's that, that's, that's how he sees death. It all, it's the big ending of all things and everything just goes back in the box at the end of the game and it's game over. And therefore, if that's the case, if there's just a big full stop at the end of life, everything is basically meaningless because it doesn't matter how much you accumulate and it doesn't matter how great you think you are and how wise you are. It's all just cancelled out at the end of life. So that's how he thinks about death. And because he hits that roadblock square on, it's very difficult for him to make much sense of life at all. It just seems like life's meaningless. If death cancels it all out, then life is devoid of meaning second limitation is the limitation of wisdom. And this is kind of ironic because the quester is supposed to be a wisdom teacher. So he's supposed to be a great sage. But what he finds on his travels is that wisdom itself, the very tool that he is using to try and find meaning in life, is broken. Wisdom itself can't achieve much. It's like he's looking through a dark cave with a torch and then his torch goes out the one thing that was that was keeping it alight you know wisdom that he was looking at everything else through the torch goes out and he's just left in complete blackness so the paradox of ecclesiastes is that the wisdom teacher realizes that wisdom itself is limited and he says in, in chapter 1 verse 18 for with much wisdom comes much sorrow the more knowledge the more grief It's basically what they teach you in Bible college. The more knowledge you gain, the more grief you'll have. And this is sort of his his, his take on things. You know, you can gain all the wisdom you want, but it's not going to really lead you anywhere because he's looking at Proverbs and this conventional view of wisdom. And Proverbs says, you know, you live a certain way and certain things are going to happen. Live a certain other way and certain negative things are going to happen. But the quester just finds that that logic doesn't always stack up, that you can live a certain way, you can live a good life, you can do good things, you can be a faithful follower of God and still get completely ripped off in life. So what's the point of wisdom? And finally, the limitation, the third limitation he comes up against. In chapter 11, verse 5, he comes up against the limitation of God's hiddenness. God's hiddenness. He says, As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. The question never addresses God directly in the whole book. And when he does uh, does talk about God, he uses the word Elohim, Hebrew word Elohim, which is a far more distant term than The main word for God in the Old Testament which is Yahweh. Yahweh has these warm connotations of God's faithfulness the story of Israel and his loyalty to the covenant but Elohim is just more distant and more detached. For the quester, God is real and he does exist and he has created all things and he is sovereign but that's exactly the problem is God's got some sort of plan which we are not privy to We've got no idea what's going to happen next. We've got no idea what God's got in store for us next. And so we've got really no idea how to live, is the way that he thinks about it. God's ways are hidden from us. They're shrouded in mystery. And, then, and therefore, how can we know what's coming down the road? How can we know what's ahead of us? And therefore, how can we know how to adjust our course? God just does what he wants and sort of leaves us to figure things out. The quester has a very distant concept of God. And so he steps back from all of this. These limitations of death, these limitations of wisdom, these limitations of God's own hiddenness. And he concludes famously, life is meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. We'll look more at what that word means next week, but he just says time and time again, meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. There is nothing under the sun that has any meaning. So what are we going to do with that? You can sort of feel the tension in the room go up and up, can't you, as you talk about these things, because it just feels so jarring. It feels so difficult for us as Christians to come to terms with the fact that that's sitting right there in the Bible, that the Bible actually says that stuff, and one of the authors of one of the books in the Bible held those views. Sometimes what people try to do is bend Ecclesiastes so that the quest is not really saying what he's saying. And we sort of say, well, you know, he... He might say everything's meaningless, but what he means is just a few things are meaningless. You know? and, and, but these other things over here, surely they're not meaningless. But it's hard to get away from the fact that he says everything. And he keeps saying everything to the point we kind of wish he'd shut up about it. But he just keeps saying everything, everything, everything is meaningless all the time. And, and so sometimes we look at the last three verses in chapter 12. And uh, they do tell a bit of a different story, that's true, and often Christians will say, well, it's those verses, that you've got to interpret the whole rest of the book in view of those, and that's very important. They do really start to change the game at the end, but they don't suddenly cancel everything he said, as if the rest of the book doesn't exist. They don't suddenly nullify the picture. He still says what he says. So I think there's a better strategy, and it's actually a fairly simple one, and we talk about it often, and it's simply that we need to place Ecclesiastes in view of the big story of Scripture. And shouldn't we do this for every book in the Bible? But no more so probably than Ecclesiastes, because it's not a self-contained theology. If you read Ecclesiastes just in a void, by itself, on itself, without any reference to anything else outside of itself, it is going to thoroughly depress you and leave you in the darkness. But Ecclesiastes, like every other part of Scripture, is designed to be read in view of the great narrative, the grand narrative of the whole of Scripture, and especially in view of Jesus. And this is what we will do throughout this series, is we will read Ecclesiastes back through the cross and back through the empty tomb, because that's what Christians are supposed to do. With every book of the Bible you read, including the Old Testament, we stand on the other side of Easter now, We are downstream in the story from where the quester stood. We've seen the one who came to give meaning to life, Jesus the Messiah. And now we see the cross and the resurrection and that has poured incredible meaning into life. So we have to go back now and read Ecclesiastes with New Testament eyes, with grace-filled hearts, and see what it all means in view of Jesus. So that's going to consistently be our approach, to take seriously what the quester says and see him as a a true and reliable guide, but always shift forward and see what does this mean in view of Jesus and what does this mean in view of the big story. Now let me just show you on those three uh, points we rolled through just before. Let me show you what difference this makes, and we'll go into each of these in more depth as the series uh, moves forward but let me just take a couple of verses from the new testament and set them alongside some of the verses from ecclesiastes so ecclesiastes talks about the limitation of death that death is the great canceller of all things and then you roll forward to the words of jesus in john 11:25 and he says i am the resurrection and the life anyone who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives by believing in me, will never die. Jesus has come to defeat death. Jesus has come, entered into the meaninglessness of our life. We'll talk about that more next week, that Jesus stepped into the meaninglessness of what the quest describes. And he did so in order to transform that experience. So he defeated the power of death on the cross. And he secured a future for us where one day death itself will die. That's, that's the reality of what we have to look forward to, the day when death itself will die. It is an enemy now. It's a defeated enemy. But one day death itself will be no more. So there is now an incredible existence beyond death. Death opens up to a whole new future. Our lives roll forward beyond death. There is going to be a final judgment where God brings all things into view, whether good nor evil, where we'll give an account for ourselves and our lives. But where ultimately it will matter that our names are written in the book of life, and that will be the final judgment basis on which God's judgment is made and from there the whole new creation opens up God's incredible future of peace shalom over the whole earth with his glory filling the earth as waters cover the sea I don't think the quester could see that that was over the horizon for him for some reason he didn't have that comprehension of what was coming next and it took Jesus to start opening that up and unpacking that and the authors of the new testament to start painting just that incredible panorama of what is still coming after death. And if there is an unbelievable future for those who are united to Christ, then that starts to breathe meaning back into life in the present. It starts to breathe purpose and hope back into the monotony, the tedium of life. And it can be monotonous, but Christ starts to break through with His resurrection power And it starts to change our perspective on what Ecclesiastes means. Yes, in large measure, life can be and is meaningless. But in the middle of it, resurrection has arrived. Death has been defeated. And one day, it will die. That's the hope. That's the future. That's what brings meaning into the present. That's where the quester needs to be brought into conversation with Jesus. And we need to listen to that dialogue. And then the limitation of wisdom. And the quester is frustrated with the limits of where wisdom can really get you. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What the Quester couldn't quite see is that there was a Palestinian tradesman coming a few hundred years after him who embodied wisdom. Didn't just mean he was wiser than everybody else, but it meant that he, within his own being, embodied wisdom. He was the living expression of the wisdom of God. Not just a wise teacher, not even just a wise king, but he was wisdom personified. Wisdom incarnate and then not only in Christ's life but supremely on the cross you see demonstrated in all of its seeming folly the wisdom, the divine wisdom of God hanging there on a Roman cross. The wisdom of the crucified one. That is the wisdom of God that in unbelievable foolishness and weakness God works to bring restoration. God works to bring newness and God works to bring healing for humanity and the whole cosmos. That's the wisdom of the cross. Strength and weakness, honor and shame, wisdom in foolishness, all through Christ now. You come back to Ecclesiastes and you start reading wisdom in view of Jesus. It all starts to take on an entirely new flavor. Wisdom is not this conventional logic where if you do x you'll get y, live this way that'll happen, live this way that'll happen. Wisdom is expressing Christ. Wisdom is Jesus. Wisdom is simply living in the shadow of the cross and letting that cross-shaped logic work its way out in our own lives. Strength and weakness. Again, this is, I think, where the quester just couldn't quite see the end goal. That right in the middle of the frustration and the seeming stupidity of life, wisdom can be right there. Because it was on the cross. Right in the brutality and the agony and and the ugliness of that event, there was wisdom working its way out. So can't that be true in our lives as well? In the middle of the despair and the hopelessness and the chaos and the confusion, wisdom, the wisdom of Christ, can be right there as God starts to work in whatever you're facing to bring newness and to bring life and to bring about resurrection. That's what wisdom is. not a formula, but the living presence of Christ working its way out in our lives every day. And finally, the hiddenness of God. You almost feel sorry for the quester as he just stumbles about blindly, just unable to find many traces of God's presence. You wish he just could have heard the words of Jesus when he said in John 14, verse 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Here comes Jesus as the great self-revelation of God, the one whom the quester was looking for all along, the one whom he was searching for. And he probably wouldn't have expected to find it in Jesus, even if he'd met him. Maybe his expectations were different. But here is the incarnate one who has come in flesh and blood, the great act of self-disclosure on the part of God to reveal to us who he is. And we find that this God has not stayed aloof and he's not stayed distant And he's not unconcerned with humanity. He has stepped right into the midst of the meaninglessness of our life. He's taken it on. And he's done so to identify with the meaninglessness of our lives. He's done so that he could have solidarity with us as we walk through our lives. He's done so that he could draw near to us. Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who can't identify with us. We don't have one who's unconcerned. We don't have one who's detached. We have one who's right here right there in the midst of it with you. Jesus and God, they were nearer than the questor ever realized. They were right there with him along the way, not as a distant and detached deity, but as the one who expresses incredible solidarity with us because he's walked in our shoes and because he's faced our temptations and because he's lived through the chaos of what life dishes up. He's able to identify with our weaknesses. He's able to sympathize with our struggles. He's able to empathize with our temptations. And he is able in the midst of your life and mine to reveal God to us. And the presence of God is not out there somewhere, but it's living within us through the power of the Spirit of Jesus that we carry around every day of our lives. Again, it starts to transform the way you read Ecclesiastes when you see Jesus as the great communication of who God really is. So Jesus is the final destination that Ecclesiastes is working towards. Ecclesiastes was probably one of the last books to be written in the Old Testament. Israel's returned from exile, and and they're waiting for God to fulfill His promises. They've got a temple rebuilt, but it's not been filled with the glory of God They've got land again but not freedom because they're an occupied people. There is no king over Israel and they're just hoping and longing and waiting and wondering what's it all coming to and, and what's God up to and where is it's a story in search of an ending. Ecclesiastes is where the Old Testament leaves you before Jesus. It's like the final word of the Old Testament, this longing for meaning and it points us forward to the one in whom meaning is found. So it's not that the Questa is wrong. It's not that we just rip Ecclesiastes out of our Bible. He's not wrong, but his search for meaning is incomplete. And that's how we need to see it. The quester is a guide who's walking with us along a journey. But it's a journey that he can only go so far on. And there comes a certain point on this journey when he turns to us and says, this is as far as I go. And so we've got to cross some terrain ourselves. But we find that just over the hill from where the quester was, we run into the arms of Christ the one that Ecclesiastes was pointing to all along, the one the quester was looking for without even knowing it, the one in whom true meaning and life and wisdom and the presence of God is found. And if you start to read Ecclesiastes that way, in view of the beauty and meaning that comes through Jesus, it starts to be filled with far more hope, far more relevance and far more depth than maybe we ever thought was there. And next week, we will dive into chapter 1. For now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book in the Bible. Lord, it's, it's a challenge for us, and it, it shakes us, and it confuses us, and it challenges us because it's so different. But I thank you, Lord, that it, it just sends us running into the arms of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you've brought about meaning, that you have brought about truth, that you have shown the Father to us, that you've shown us wisdom and you've shown us life and you've shown us everything the quester was looking for. So we pray that uh, this series, this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes might center itself around you, the one who's come to bring meaning into our lives. Pray, Father, for each of us that you would use this journey that we're going to embark on this year to teach us. We just want to open ourselves up to whatever you'd have to say to us however you would lead us and guide us, change our thinking, open up our minds, just give us a fresh glimpse of you and a fresh sense of amazement at the way that Jesus has come to transform our existence. Father, shake us out of whatever we need to be shaken out of. Stir us up, challenge us, and change us and excite us and spur us on. We pray that you would use this journey to do a good work in our lives. And in our church. We commit it to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 903090. 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.